The Free For All Roundtable. Round one. On round one, we say good morning to Vas Bednar, Executive Director of the Master of Public Policy in Digital Society at McMaster University. Reshmi Nair, co-host of The Rush, 2 to 6 p.m. on News Talk 1010. Tim Hudak is also here, former leader of Ontario's Conservatives. Uh, at the risk of sort of revisiting something, so I don't know that we necessarily have to spend too much time on it this morning, um, but Vas Bednar, the Premier, is digging in, hired some lawyers. There's going to be a court hearing. He is declining to appear before the federal inquiry into the Declaration of the Emergencies Act. And I just don't quite get what his game here is. Vaz. I don't really get it either. I mean, hiding behind some legalese, claiming that it's more of a police matter than anything else. Uh, this inquiry is mandated. There were, you know, a federal, there was a clear federal provincial interplay. He's made a couple of statements about who he supported in that. And I think as a form of leadership, people are going to expect the premier to participate in this review. And it's only going to exacerbate uh, calls for his participation and others. It's perpl- yeah. Well, Tim Hudak, the pointy-headed argument, perhaps that's just my opinion, but the uh, the argument is that you can't have one government summon, summoning another government to explain itself and that it would be a bad precedent. Does that hold up? Uh, the pointy heads seem to be winning the argument right now, but I, I don't think that's the right call. Look, I think of all of the leaders involved in this, uh, Premier Ford had the greatest level of clarity. I think his line that you've got a right to protest, but when it becomes an occupation, that's not on and we'll break it up. Did a great job in, in ending the protests uh, peacefully and safely in, in Windsor and in the city of Toronto. So I, I think it's an opportunity for him. Like my advice would be the opposite. Go there, tell your story. It's going to come across well. You've got a good story to tell. But it sounds like in the, in the background, uh, room, some some pointy-headed lawyers or such are making a constitutional <laughs> argument. I don't think it holds water, and I think it's smart politically. Yeah, Rashmi Nair, I agree entirely with what Tim is saying, that I think the Premier actually would look quite strong, and he, he's good in a forum like that, you know, sitting in front of some microphones saying, here's why I did what I did, and here's why I support what Trudeau did. I think that would play well, but for whatever reason, he's not going to do it. Yeah, and I appreciate Tim's insight on this, because as the days go on, I wonder if it's more about Doug Ford or if he's being advised not to do this. And as the days go on, it seems to be that it's more about Doug Ford and Sylvia Jones. So if it's personal, then it's because they don't want to go on the stand. And if they don't want to go on the stand, everyone is asking why. So uh, one of the big things that the uh, government is working on is housing, and they seem to have the bit in their teeth, and the housing minister is going to join us at 8.05. I guess, again, I'll start with uh, Tim Hudak on this one, because it's kind of in your wheelhouse with the organization you're a part of. Is there stuff in here, first of all, that you think is actually going to goose housing starts, but perhaps more importantly, is there anything that causes you any degree of concern? ton of stuff that we like at the Ontario Real Estate Association that's going to bring the keys closer to hand by hardworking Canadians and get a place they can actually afford. Um, I'm looking forward to Minister Clark's uh, appearance just after 8, John. A couple things that really stand out for me. Number one, this bill's got a lot of backbone. Like This is the most comprehensive, bold, pro-home ownership and pro-housing legislation that in, in memory. And it stands up to the NIMBY forces that are one of the main causes why homes can't get built. It takes away a lot of the tactics they use to delay projects make them more expensive and cancel them. And number two, I like the accountability, John. The, the, 
bill will actually set out targets for how many homes per big municipality to get to the 1.5 million homes over 10 years. For example, Toronto has a target of 285,000 homes in that time period. Mississauga, 120,000. Hamilton, 47,000. I like this because you can set the target and say to the municipality, you hit that target, all right, then you're going to get that transit project. You're going to get that arena. If you don't hit your target and you close your doors to new residences, well, your project goes to the bottom of the list. I think it's brilliant. Okay. Reshmi, your thoughts, and as an addendum to what Tim was just saying, not all objections to hyperdevelopment are the result of nimbyism. I mean, in my own neighborhood, I just don't think you need like a 65-story tower. I'd be happy with 30. (laughs) Okay, but then why? Why? Because we live in the neighborhood and we have an opinion on what the skyline in our local community looks like. We really need to ask ourselves this question. Uh, I, I... I think the cities belong to landowners for too long. We need a better rental market. Rent is never going to go down. You're not going to see rent control in this city. So we need to build up. We, we need to build up. And, and, and building up and into the sky makes sense. I, I get the aesthetics, John, but it's, we need to build homes. And there's so much space in the sky in the GTA. Vaz Bednar. I lived uh, for years in a in a triplex in Toronto in an apartment that had been converted from a duplex. My understanding was that it was actually pretty tricky to convert it to a triplex, but it was great in terms of density in that neighborhood. So, you know, Tim, Tim is more of an expert on all of this than me, but I was happy to read it. And I think it might incentivize and encourage more people to make modifications. I mean, we talk about the rental market, but it's largely a privately provided rental market where you know, the incentive to to a private small landlord is uh, still steep to make investments to to change their home so that there's uh, safe quality housing for people instead of a lot of what we see around the city of Toronto, which is, you know, basement apartments that that don't meet the code. So I hope this inspires more people to also uh, support more intergenerational living or living with friends. We're seeing more kind of co-housing or, or friends buying buying a place together. And I think it unlocks some novel opportunities and we got to kick open as many doors as we can here. There are several women from Commonwealth nations, including Canadians, who are in a detention camp in Syria and some of them have been there for half a decade. Some of them are also raising kids there. They had left their countries in order to marry ISIS soldiers. Then they started to regret it, ended up in the detention camps. And now one of them, at the very least, Kimberly Pullman, is being repatriated to Canada. Uh, Reshmi, I'll start with you. I watched a documentary about these women and spent most of it thinking what unsympathetic individuals they are. But then I also found myself wondering if we were rescuing them from another cult, maybe the Moonies, then people wouldn't be as enraged. <laughs> yeah, but, but do we res- rescue people from cults around the world just because of their nationality? Like, I, I, I'm Canadian and I made mistakes abroad and now I want to be saved. It's, it's, a, it's an interesting discussion, but the more these stories pop up, the more I lean towards... You made a mistake first. You're Canadian second. Okay. Vaz, do you think that somebody who makes a mistake, and it's a huge one, and, you know, some of these women, not necessarily this one, married men who decapitated people on video, um, that maybe you should have to stew in a concentration camp for the rest of your life? I mean, not for the rest of your life. Let's not forget about half of the people that are uh, in these uh, detention areas are children, most of them under the age of seven. So Canada has been making some interesting uh, interventions, mostly led, it seems, like a maybe a privately hired uh, lawyer. So open for more conversation there in terms of 
you know, Canada is a welcoming place that does believe in offering people second, third chances and a better shot at life. But the quality of life that these people have can't be, you know, we're reading about their depression, et cetera, et cetera. It does not seem humane. And Tim Hudak, last word on this file. We don't have to like these women to necessarily give them the, the duty of care that a citizen of Canada gets. I'm getting soft here, John. They, yeah, they, they married the enemy. Absolutely. These were monsters who were, you know, killing other Canadians and others from across the world. But man, you, when you're young, you make dumb calls. It's an extremely stupid call. But you're 18, 19. You, you know, you've been in detention camp now for, for seven years. At the end of the day, I, I'm with Vaz on this one. Uh, I think that uh, some forgiveness here is in order. Uh, and if they've learned from this tough lesson, bring them home. Owing to uh, somebody being reassigned to a new job in New Zealand, there are now more women in their House of Parliament than men. Vass, is that genuinely significant? I mean, I thought it was pretty cool. It doesn't seem like it's happening in the city of Brampton. hey But, uh, you know, we, we, we talk about the importance of, of women in parliament and uh, women seeing other women succeed in that regard. So, you know, when we start to play that raw numbers game, it gets a little bit uh, boring in that binary. But I think it's not all for them that they, that they tip that way. And uh, it's certainly an interesting thing to call out and, and certainly historic. So I think it's pretty cool. Does it, is it going to fundamentally change their policymaking and the priorities that they have. Not necessarily, but some of the literature does show that women participate in uh, deliberations in particular ways and are, you know, better at uh, taking a more inclusive view. I'm being a little bit reductionist with how I'm, I'm summarizing that, but let's see if it, it changes their po- policy priorities or their outcomes in any way. That remains to be seen, but for now, I think it's uh, okay to do a little confetti cannon for them. All right. Reshmi, actually, New Zealand is joining a half dozen nations in the world that apparently have parity or better in their parliaments for women. Yeah, the the future is now, right? I think we've been cracking jokes my whole life that the world would be better off if women led. Let's see what happens. Stay tuned. Tim Hudak? You know, my last speech in the legislature, as I uh, bid farewell after 21 years, uh, said that nothing would make this dad more proud than if one of my daughters you know ended up there someday i i then joked of course that deb and i being you know much on the conservative side they'll rebel and they'll be a uh, doc martin sporting tan wearing socialist uh, uh on the bench but uh well god bless them that they got there right i'd um, i'd love to see this uh how how they did this in new zealand and maybe it was as i said just good examples strong women leaders attract more because as somebody who spent as leader a lot of time recruiting women to run for office it was harder i found women candidates often looked at the family and their life more broadly. Men tend to be a bit more selfish. And quite frankly, men tend to be more arrogant, right? Oh, yeah, this is made for me. I can do it. Women were more, more hesitant to step forward. So it, I would like to know what the magic formula is. We're heading that direction. But I'd love to see us hit this. I think it would reflect society perfectly. It is interesting, though, Rashmi, drawing on what Tim was just saying. Whenever there's a woman in politics or business, people always say, how do you balance being, you know, having this powerful <sighs> position and raising your kids? I don't think anybody's ever asked Justin Trudeau how he's raising three kids while being the prime minister. Yeah, no. And and it, it needs to be part of the discussion, this assumption that the woman carries more of the work of the family and the household. We are probably better at it. We're probably more efficient. We get it done in a better way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But men should try. 
<laughs> Thank you all. That's our time. Reshmi Nair, Vas Bednar, and Tim Hudak. And we're just drawing close to the 8 o'clock news. But uh, just actually one last pivot from the final thought that we had. And Reshmi and Tim were commenting on this sort of idea that, you know, women have to balance things, but men who have kids aren't, you know, aren't really all that heavily involved. I noticed somebody making an observance the other day about their male friends on social media. And they said, why is it every time one of my buds, when their wife is out of the house, they say they're babysitting? Aren't they just parenting? Catch the round table. Round one at 745. Round two at 845. Weekday mornings on more in the morning. News Talk 1010 Toronto.